Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Gateway Presents. My name is Andrew McQuinney. I'm the opinion editor here at The Gateway, the University of Alberta's official student media source. Joining me today is my uh, colleague, Theo. Today, we're going to be talking about New Year's resolutions. Should people be uh, putting lots of investment into New Year's resolutions as a positive way to change their lives? Are there better ways about going um, self-improvement, about ritualization? Yeah. So why don't you introduce yourself, Theo? Hi there, I'm Theo P.S. I'm a fourth-year student in psychology and sociology at the University of Alberta. Uh, my research background is into sort of the intersection of psychology and sociology. So I'm really interested in these sorts of discussions about large-scale social practices and what do they mean for us on kind of an individual level. Absolutely, yeah. So I think kicking things off, I spent my New Year's Day, instead of making resolutions, I posted uh, <laughs> this quote from Antonio Gramsci. For those who don't know, Gramsci was an Italian Marxist uh, around the 1910s and 1920s. He had been imprisoned uh, by Mussolini when the fascists came in in Italy, did a lot of interesting work, um, but he wrote a piece called I Hate New Year's Day. This is a quote uh, from there. Every morning, when I wake again under the pall of the sky, I feel for that me, it is New Year's Day. That's why I hate these New Year's that fall like fixed maturities, which turn life and human spirit into a commercial concern with its neat final balance, its outstanding amounts, its budget for new management. They make us lose the continuity of life and spirit. You end up seriously thinking that between one year and the next there is a break, that a new history is beginning. You make resolutions, you regret your resolution, and so on and so forth. That's generally what is wrong with dates. I want every morning to be a New Year's for me. Every day I want to reckon with myself, and every day I want to renew myself. No day is set aside for rest. I choose my pauses myself when I feel drunk with the intensity of life, and I want to plunge into animality to draw from a new vigor. No spiritual time serving. I would like every hour of my life to be new, though connected to the ones that have passed. No day of celebration with its mandatory collective rhythms to share with all the strangers I don't care about. Because our grandfathers, grandfathers, and so on celebrated, we too should feel the urge to celebrate. That is nauseating. So that was kind of his stance. As with many New Year's resolutions and statements on New Year's resolutions, this is also something that gets shared pretty regularly. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I kind of felt initially Gramsci kind of does have a point. I do personally kind of have an issue with New Year's resolutions beyond just being bitter. I know I can complain a lot. I can be bitter about it. But I do really feel um, Gramsci had a lot to say kind of about like limiting ritualization of self-improvement and stuff to uh, just one point in the year and blocking off years as like this chunk of how your life operates. What are kind of your first reactions to uh, that quote for you? Honestly, I like the quote because it's, I, I've always liked Gramsci's writing. It's, it's poetic. It's angry. Um, I, I just think it, it, it has this, this energy that all of Gramsci's writing does. At the same time, I, I disagree with it pretty intensely. I, I think that, that ritual is profoundly important and specifically rituals relating to self-evaluation, like looking at resolutions. I disagree that we should do away with rituals. I, I don't think that's actually possible at all when it comes to self-evaluation and resolutions. I, I think we instead need to reclaim rituals at a time when they're constantly turned into rituals of mass consumption. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think that's a big thing that Gramsci, I think, kind of meant. I think he was mostly sickened by kind of like like rituals being appropriated to suit capital. Because I kind of think, especially in the way he kind of writes here, talking about how we have things that 
kind of treat our lives, we inventory our lives by years, even inventorying our lives, kind of having things like a balance, like a balance book, you have kind of like, you have your revenues, you have your deficits, you have kind of that cost balance coming out in the end, you're trying to constantly be like, what are the things that I did good? What things I did bad? What do I need to invest in? Um, and then breaking that up by kind of like almost in a way business quarters. And I think that feels really limiting and really just kind of like even atomizing individually. We're kind of like looking interiorly at ourselves, but we're not kind of looking at maybe the broader reasons for why some of those things came about or kind of how other factors played into some of those um, things being noted down in that balance sheet itself. Yeah, and I and I don't disagree with that. I, I think that uh, you do see this co-optation of, of New Year's as a whole, of, of the holidays as a whole, as a, as a thing that you can effectively buy. It's a commodity, right? Uh, and so is this whole business of resolutions, right? It's uh, you buy a new gym membership, so on and so forth. But I think that that doesn't mean that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Uh, I think there's room here to reclaim these rituals. That's because I think that, again, these rituals are unavoidable. I want to explain why Gramsci's point about how every day is New Year's for him, right? He makes this resolution every day. He makes these decisions on his own terms. I think that's that's actually impossible. I think that the New Year's ritual, of, uh, New Year's ritual of evaluating the year that is passed and deciding what is good and bad about what one has done, what must be changed in one's life, is a ritual of hindsight. And there's this author named uh, Mark Freeman who wrote a great little book on the subject. It's called hindsight, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, and I would highly recommend it to everyone listening in because it reads really easy, but it has some pretty profound insights. Freeman has a narrative understanding of life. He, he says that we are, are only able to think about ourselves and our lives to morally evaluate our actions when we take that constant stream of consciousness that is our lives and turn it into a story, turn it into a narrative. You can't analyze a story without being able to read it. And so, as Freeman notes, you can't know, for example, that a conversation with a friend was actually this super meaningful last conversation until maybe that friend passes away, right? You need to know the context of everything else. You need to know the narrative to see the importance of events. Here's the thing. Narratives like that don't form spontaneously. Narrative making isn't an unconscious process. And, you know, I don't think Gramsci's suggesting that it is an unconscious process, but I think what's happening here is that narratives are told, they're formed, you know, they're stories, they're a creative process, and you, you can't be creative every single day. I mean, it's, it's kind of like having sex every day. You know, it's, it's bound to lose some creativity eventually. It's, it's going to become a meaningless habit. You know, you can't bring out the chains every single night or else there's going to be nothing to lose at all. You know, all that's to say that the moments where you can really self-evaluate are actually far and few between. You need these moments of creativity and insight. And they come usually when you're on your deathbed, you know, when you lose friends, when you watch your kid grow up. Uh, and in that way, I think they're usually involuntary. But I think that the New Year's ritual, along with birthdays, and I think it's so important that we celebrate each other's birthdays. I think that's something that people sometimes avoid. I think it's so important. Uh, I think that these moments are some of the few times we can voluntarily self-evaluate. Yeah, that's interesting seeing um, that bringing up that comparison, especially between, I think, birthdays and New Year's. That's another kind of thing that gets, again, blocked into, again, that year chunk, the discrete year chunk maybe isn't necessarily, again, like New Year's kind of um, tied in continuously with the year previously. We kind of look at like the last year and then maybe the last year all kind of mm -hmm. in that isolation. Would you say it's kind of the same problem of that co-optation and that, like, that 
emphasis of using that holiday and that ritual for commodities. Like, so the same can be said for people's birthdays. I think that people will celebrate birthdays, but they'll also use it as like a, hey, guys, uh, my birthday is coming up. Let's all get together and go consume. Let's go out and go do something and like buy an experience or like purchase an experience in order to make that meaningful when really maybe birthdays could be still celebrating, but without that kind of um, element of capital behind it. I think I think what you're saying again. I, I don't disagree with it. Just like I don't disagree with the notion that New Year's is is oftentimes this frenzy of purchasing. But again, I, th- I think that if we do want to self-evaluate, which is profoundly important, without self-evaluation, you can't understand yourself as a moral or ethical being. You can't know am I doing things right or wrong in my life. Uh, and I think that it's these rituals again that are the only places where we can consistently do this without you know, like throwing a curveball at us and forcing us to do it. So I agree. Birthdays can become this uh, this just ritual of, of consumption, but they don't have to be. Precisely. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's kind of what I brought that up. Like there is that thing, but there, but there also is like they don't have to be. And then the same with any other kind of like annual holiday, for example, or any kind of like those kind of rituals there. Well, yeah, and I do agree it is important to have them be present. You do need to maybe sometimes to have things set aside in order to take the time to voluntarily reflect on what's going on. I also think it's important, I think, in the sense to um, take what Gramsci says and be able to recognize that, like, life is more, I think, of an assemblage than it is kind of discrete chunks tacked onto each other. Things are kind Mm -hmm. of laying on top of each other, flowing. And while we do have to tame some of that into a narrative in order to give some kind of coherence, you aren't able to decide what plot points are the major apexes of your life until they're already in the past, until they're Mm -hmm. already gone. That is the nature of crafting a narrative. But even the process of being in that present and the process of formulating where those plot points are and making those plot points happen is still happening in the present. So I think there still is kind of like two things operating in tandem there. So I'm not quite following this Mm. this idea of what do you you mean by... So, well, we can... So while we can retrospectively look back at things in a plot, like there is a process of meaning making that is like things that have already happened in order to like make sense of the important things in that narrative, mm-hmm. it has to have already happened. Those events have already happened. But the process of meaning making is still already a very present act. You still have to be very engaged and aware of what's right. going on um, in order to do that meaning making in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of that back and forth. So I think Gramsci is entirely wrong when he wants to kind of be constantly reevaluating things in his own terms. But I also think so I think there's maybe a place for both. Yeah, there's those things that are set aside like voluntary chances to do that, but also those involuntary chances to do Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, for me, meaning making in the present is something that's actually quite difficult to attain. I don't think we we do make that much meaning of what's happening to us as it happens. Uh, Again, I think it's it's in, in order to really understand what just happened. You have to sort of spell it out for yourself. You know, I think most of the time we're we're on a sort of autopilot or a semi-autopilot. Um, you know, we're we're conscious, but are we conscious with a capital C most of the time? I think we only are that when we when we look back. And I think that kind of segues into this idea of uh, why rituals need to be reclaimed. I think because you need these moments to look back, uh, and at the current moment. Maybe they're not the best for that, you know, as you say, as Gramsci says, you know, so many years ago. But I think that, you know, the cool thing about rituals is that they allow for conflicting thoughts. They allow for conflicting ideologies. In that way, they're they're actually one of the only ways to reliably escape the consumerist nightmare fed to us by our neoliberal ideologies. So, like, to explain that, 
there were these research uh, researchers named Cohen and Rosen, and they did a number of really fascinating cultural psychological studies comparing the way the Jews and Protestants think about morality and immorality. And what they found is that both faiths equally frowned upon sinful acts, but the Protestants frowned far more on sinful thoughts than the Jews did. And the reason for this is, is super interesting. Basically, the, the researchers argued that Judaism is a faith that places a greater emphasis on action. It's through action that one demonstrates faith. It's not wrong to crave pork if you're kosher. It's wrong to eat the pork, right? On the other hand, Protestantism is based far more on the biblical New Testament, which focuses more on internal faith, on one's internal connection with God. In, in that way, thinking sinfully becomes a real and common thing. If your faith is determined by thought and thought leads to action, which coincidentally Cohen and Rosen found to be a greater belief among Protestants, there's no real room for transgression. What I think is going on here is actually a comparison between a more ritualistic faith and one that is less ritualistic. I think we can agree that Protestantism represents a deritualization of Christianity, a reaction to the pomp of the Catholic Church, but it is ritual that allows one to be both faithful and sinful, to, to be at ease with self-contradiction. Uh, a Catholic can sin, but they can also be absolved of guilt by undergoing the ritual, the act of confession. So faith becomes a matter of context, of time and place. And in a similar way, I think rituals give us the chance to contradict the constant demands of culture to consume and enjoy. We are always under the weight of this neoliberal ideology that tells us to buy things to be happy, like you said, to think of ourselves as one-man corporations into which we invest resources and expect returns on that investment. This ideology that alienates us from our peers through competition and even from ourselves by telling us to ignore our negative feelings and always think positively to the future. You know, neoliberalism is an ideology of loneliness, of sadness, and of an inability to confront that sadness. You know, but that's also unavoidable. We need ideology. You can't live without ideology. We all have ideology. It's inescapable. And so then I think that rituals are the hole in the warm blanket of ideology. Rituals allow us to continue living our social lives, to not renounce everything and, you know, live in a barrel like Diogenes, but it also permits a transgression. You know, as long as that transgression is bound by a discrete time and place, you know, the New Year's festivity, it can occur without tearing us apart with anxiety. And I think that the most powerful New Year's transgression, aside from compelling us to look back at our lives in a society that tells us to always look blissfully forward, is that it's a moment to openly share love and warmth. And I know that, that sounds a little new agey. And, you know, I accept the accusation. I like listening to Dan Gibson Solitudes as much as the next gift shop owner in Banff. But, but I also think of love as a very dangerous force in a society that replaces human warmth with a view that all of life is a market and we are all capitalists within it. Yeah, I think that's a really, I think, fascinating way to look at that, kind of seeing some chances of these rituals as kind of holes. A lot of other Marxist thinkers have always considered um, when things are ideological um, and when dominant ideologies exist, they can't always be complete um, closed systems. I know Zizek has talked a lot about this. I've heard of Jameson as well. We've kind of spoken about um, there's always going to be some kind of contradiction that is inherent to the system. Um, mm -hmm. It is kind of like that, the real, as we say, that kind of like traumatic kind of like, oh, this is where we can see where those things break out. So it's fascinating that there's kind of these spaces for that kind of transgression, but it's also necessary in order for the whole system to kind of hold itself together. So do you kind of see those holes through these rituals and the kind of the destabilizations they present as kind of the thing that we should latch onto in order to kind of reclaim those kind of ideological spaces and maybe start beginning a, transform a social transformation. Definitely, because I, I see what you're saying there, That that and, and kind of what Zizek says, is that these are 
that these places of transgression might actually be protective for the ruling ideology, right? That uh, because you're allowed to transgress in this one place, you conform in all the other places. But I think at the same time, this is the one place where these sorts of thoughts and, and, and of love and warmth and, and thinking backwards on your life are just so ingrained in our society. So if we want to expand on those thoughts, I, you know, I follow with what you're saying. We need to target them and, and you know, like expand on them. But, you know, I want to go one step further, actually, and, and defend the New Year's ritual as a ritual of consumption and uh, not just a, a possible ritual of love and warmth and looking back. And, you know, you, you noted Zizek, and Zizek talks about how the chorus in Greek plays can laugh and cry for us. And he raises even more concrete examples of certain societies hiring weepers for funerals or of the Tibetan prayer wheel, which you can put a piece of paper in a wheel and spin it, and basically the wheel prays for you. So you can think whatever you want. You know, Zizek says you can think all your dirty thoughts, but the prayer still happens. Uh, objectively, you're praying. For something closer to home, you know, you watch Friends and the laugh track laughs for you. And you feel like you've laughed, even though you've been sitting there with like a half smile on your face for 30 minutes. So Zizek raises a slightly different point with these examples. But I think he's what he says also applies to the notion of rituals. Uh, these sorts of ritualistic behaviors, the turning of the wheel, listening to canned laughter, it allows us to satisfy a social requirement through others, but remain cognitively untaxed. Uh, you know, you laugh at the comedy through the recording, but you can think about all the sad things that happened today while while you do. In the same way, the New Year's ritual as it stands today, in, in all its consumerist explosivity, you know, Boxing Day comes along and people are punching each other as they're running through Walmart, that might actually give us a chance to think about reality, about ourselves, in, in ways less burdened by consumerist ideology. We go about the motions of New Year's reverie, but I think it's kind of no coincidence that we often feel depressed and empty as we do it. And, you know, maybe we're a little confused about that, but I think it's because in that moment as we do the ritual, even this ritual that is one of consumption and of loneliness, we're able to actually evaluate that consumption and loneliness in ways that we never could uh, outside of the ritual. Kind of as a, a little closing bit, we've talked a lot about like even just ritualization in general in relation to kind of New Year's reverie. What do you kind of think a New Year's would look like without that kind of like logic of that neoliberalism behind it? Or what kind of what would you see in a lot of those rituals you think? Maybe not in grand terms, but maybe just in small ways. I think that feeling of loneliness and emptiness that we often do in the holidays would be lessened. I think we'd be happier. I think we'd be happier actually evaluating the negatives of our lives because ultimately neoliberal ideology with its push to constantly make you happy, to view happiness as a duty almost, and any failure to be happy as a failure of, of yourself, uh, I think it makes us feel ashamed to be sad. And so moments where we can be sad, when we can look back on our lives and say, it's both good and bad, uh, I think those are things that we could look forward to maybe. If you had a bad year, it's not your fault. It might be capitalism's fault. It might be other things, but don't be afraid to lean into it. It might be your fault too, but think about it. Precisely. Thanks so much, Fio. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>